Welcome to the Generation Y Podcast. I'm Will. And I'm Jean. And this is a podcast designed for young adults where we discuss millennial pop culture and how we can thrive in a world that wasn't built for us. Because we know that young adulting is hard and we want to help. So we're asking the questions that we know you're thinking and we're having conversations with people who know the answers. On today's episode, we're joined by Georgia Congress candidate William Haston to discuss the government's role during the national crisis and to talk about what we can do to help. This is the Generation Y Podcast. William, welcome to the Generation Y Podcast. Guys, thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. We are. I've been excited about thrilled. this for a long time. So for the purposes of today's episode, one would love to hear like your background and all that and what you're running for and where that fits into the bigger picture. And then I do want to get into, and we will discuss how what's happening in our country right now, this pandemic that's happening, how this plays into all of this, so yeah. all that stuff. But first, just give us your background and, and where did you come from? Yeah. So... Um a question I've been answering a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you know, I keep getting the question of why run? Who are you? Right. Um, why run against a seven-term incumbent? So this is great. Uh, <laughs> I guess the the quick answer to all that is uh, I grew up in a little town in East Tennessee, um, probably maybe 5,000 people, mm. uh, and grew up kind of hardworking family, uh, always kind of seeing my parents kind of making sure that they were doing everything they could to give us everything that we could possibly need, you know, and when what we wanted kind of fit into that, uh, definitely doing what they could to give us that. Uh, but more than anything, kind of just growing up in this place where you see everybody's working hard. Uh, not a lot of people have a passive income and they, you know, there's not a lot of um, wealth or, you know, this, this idea that people are, are set you know, there, it's just always this idea of let's do, let's go to work, let's go to work and let's try to make this work for, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And so kind of growing up in that place, uh, my dad used to always tell me, you know, you got to go to school, get an education. Uh, so I went to college, a little school called King College at the time, now King University. Uh, they're moving up in the world, uh -huh. you know, full on university now uh, and joined the Air Force uh, in 2008 when I graduated. Of course, we all know the financial crisis is going on. Sure. People like, are I'm getting, getting out of here. Yeah, exactly. People <laughs> are getting laid off and, you know, jobs are going away uh, and join the military. Um, kind of just always was something I wanted to do, mm -hmm. uh, but never thought it would be something that I absolutely had to do. Yeah. Uh, I remember going to the recruiter and saying, hey, man, you know, I really want to be an officer. I really want to be an officer. And he looked at me with this kind of confused look like I should have known what he was going to tell me. Uh, and he was like, well, it's 18 months is the wait list. So, Yikes. you know, what do you, you, you got a plan? And I was like, uh, no, I don't. So I guess I'm going to enlist because my loans are due in six months. Uh, so I enlisted, uh, as you know, I was, I guess I enlisted as an airman basic, went to basic training, uh, -huh. uh and became an airman first class shortly thereafter, started making the big bucks, right. uh, yes. uh, like 740 bucks or something like Ooh. that. So, you know, really making things happen at a that year. Point. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> um, and you know, we kind of bounced around, had the best time, you know, people say, thank you for your service. No, I had a ball. It was oh, great. That's great. I got to do things I probably never would have done uh, in my life. Relive while I was all there. of your like little boy childhood dreams. Yeah, no, it was it was phenomenal. How long did you serve in the military in the Air Force? About nine years. Wow. Um, so it, it it was good. It was good. Um, you know, I could not think 
you know, that I would ever have grown up as much as I did. Uh, definitely got the opportunity to meet some people, learn some things, um, and really just kind of set myself up um, to kind of learn uh, all the stuff about government, learn as much as I could about kind of how it worked, the bureaucracy of it all, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, getting the chance to move around and live in some awesome places um, and really just do some things that um, – I take with me, you know, now in, in my approach to this campaign, uh, dealing with my family, my daughter, um, my wife, um, whether she loves or hates those things, I don't know. Um, but definitely in just um, how I'm pursuing kind of this thing that's in front of me now. Yeah. And we're going to get into that. And just for full disclosure, we're, we've all been friends for a while now. And we always joke around that, William, you're definitely one of those people who you've got some things that you just can't talk about. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> if he told you, he'd have to kill you. Yeah. And if you, if you can see. William, he's the biggest person I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> we, we had to, we had to make adjustments just to fit him in this room that is, today. That is not true. <laughs> we had to raise up all the tripods for the camera and everything. Well, the most important question: take us back just a little bit. Yeah. Did you run for student council in your high school? That's a. <laughs> All right, Will. So you're going to drag this out of me. My <laughs> f- first time I ever ran for office was in fourth grade. Okay. Oh so we started young. Uh, we did. We, we started, started young. very young. And, okay. And what was this I office? I was the fourth grade uh, student body president oh my at gosh. Jonesboro Elementary School. And what did oh. you promise that you would do? Oh, man. There were lots of big <laughs> soda, promises in that. Soda in the square, water fountain. Square <laughs> pizza every day. Uh, you know, just making sure that we were we were hitting the basics. Oh, I my know. gosh. I hate square pizza. Well, you know. Hey, it was a treat what? back then. That really? Is, wow. Square this, pizza? I'm going to leave right now. <laughs> yeah. That, that is hey, a... tell me, like, fill me in. Why Sell me on square pizza. It was just... Will. What? I don't, I don't feel like it. we should have to sell you on square pizza. I mean, it was just pizza. better than Sloppy Joe Day. I don't know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like those and things. mashed potato day. Uh, that was a big I one. It got messy. I'm mashed potato I day. Don't know I, if, I don't know if Georgia lunches were different, but uh, William and I both went to school in Tennessee. And I'm going to tell you... There were just certain certain things that I would not eat now, but oh my gosh, was I excited about them as a kid yeah, in the lunchroom. And square pizza, pizza was one of them. <laughs> I don't know that the little things on top were pepperonis, but they were oh something. God, definitely They not. were a substance that tasted like mystery pepperoni. Yes. Just prison mystery. Meat. Yes. Yes. In the square that fit in the square on your tray. Yes. Okay. So you sort of always had a, a knack for this. You sort of had your eye on politics. I, I did. I, you know, it's something that growing up in a small town and kind of seeing how things worked during election time was always exciting. I always thought it was really cool to have yard signs. Obviously. Uh, and now yeah. I realize how expensive yard signs are. Uh, <laughs> it's a thing that I, I think I took for granted at the time, but it was always really cool. And my uncle uh, was an alderman for a long time in our town. And he used to always have these blue and yellow signs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just always kind of stuck out in my mind. And I know that when he hears me talk about these blue and yellow signs that he still uses in running for office now, um, all these years later, that he'll probably be blown away. But that's something that stuck with me for a very long time. Wait, I have so many questions, though. Did you win the student body president in the fourth grade? Oh, man. Now, let me just let me just tell you. By a landslide. I won won that election. (laughs) Fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, ninth grade, (laughs) tenth grade. 11th grade and then didn't run in 12th grade because they told me you had to plan the 10-year reunion and i was like no nah, i'm good oh, oh this, hey, i know what's uh, funny actually my 10-year reunion is coming up and everyone's asking me whether or not i'm going and my old roommate we went to college together but we've been best friends he was senior uh, body vice president and so he has a hand in playing this or uh, planning this thing so he was like hey are you going back to our reunion and i'm like 
why? He's like, you have to go. I'm planning it. And I was like, well, then give me those coops. I'll, yeah. I'll go if you give me the discount. <laughs> it's expensive. It really is. It is expensive. So this has been a huge part of your life. Oh, yeah, man. From early on. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That Born doesn't even bread. touch college. Uh, I was in the Student Government Association as a senator and then uh, president my junior year. Oh, my gosh. So like it's it's a thing. I just I love it. I And it's mainly obviously you guys know me. But I love just talking to people. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of a thing I've always loved. Um, I've never met a stranger. It was yeah, very, very problem- easy to yeah. talk to. Yeah. It was very problematic as a child when you're talking to strangers <laughs> and your parents. And your we just met this morning and we've been really, <laughs> you know, I feel like now we know so much house. about each other and I'm at your house now. So, uh, so fast forward is just a little bit, you, you know, that's your schooling experience. You go and join the Air Force and mm-hmm. then just pick up there. Take us after that. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I got married, geez, right as I joined the Air Force, I uh, lived apart for most of the time that I was in the Air Force. So she was in medical oh, wow. school um, and then in residency. And we, we finally got to live together in Charleston, uh, where I decided, you know, we, it's time for us to kind of make a move as a family. Kind of mm-hmm. the thing in the in the military is before you hit 10 years, uh, you need to decide whether you're going to stay or go uh, because you're able to retire at 20. Uh, and so we had decided, you know, we're going to pursue this fellowship uh, in infectious disease here in Atlanta. And was an appropriate like? time to, to talk about <laughs> exactly. what, what's going on there. Exactly. And so as we began to look at that and, and what that looked like for your um, wife, for my wife, it was obviously time that I can't keep bouncing around and moving around and kind of setting up some more stability for kids and things like that. So we decided to move here. Um, and that's kind of where things So not only are you, um, not only do you have lifelong experience in politics and the military, but you are also now a, uh, a a resource for infectious disease. If that's what you could call it. Sure. Yeah. I I hear things secondhand and try to interpret all the big sciencey words that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can gather. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure we're going to get into that. So then tell us now, fast forward to today, Mm -hmm. you are running. Tell us, tell our listeners what you're running for and how that kind of plays into the bigger picture of government. Yeah, definitely. So I'm running for uh, Georgia's fourth congressional district, Um, about 780,000 people in our district um, against uh, seven term incumbent representative Hank Johnson. Um, and, and the biggest thing for me is just as a representative who is there to fight. Uh, I think that kind of the way our politics are going now, um, and this is, this is kind of something that I've, I've heard growing up along, you know, closed mouth doesn't get fed. Uh, and our district needs somebody that's willing to fight and be that person that's there, um, trying to get what we can, um, because there are lots and lots of districts out there. There are lots and lots of people who need things. Um, and you know, the fourth is an interesting place being so close to Atlanta um, and having that kind of cultural history in that, you know, that uh, touch with being, you know, the sister district to Representative John Lewis, um, a giant among giants um, in the civil rights movement, um, in the progressive movement uh, and seeing that, you know, we really have the opportunity uh, as, you know, our representatives uh, are getting older uh, that somebody's got to pick up the baton and somebody's got to keep running right. and fighting for people. Um, and, you know, whenever you look at where our politics are now, um, they really belong to corporations. They really belong to the people who can pay to play. Um, and if you're well connected and you've got enough money, you can do whatever you want and you can get things accomplished. Um, and, and I think that that's fundamentally flawed. Uh, that's wrong because even those people only get one vote, even though they can vote millions and millions and millions of times with their influence and with their money. And so, 
uh, kind of the inspiration behind my run is just being a fighter for people, being a progressive fighter who is responsive and ready to really move the ball forward uh, for the people more so than any corporation or, you know, wealthy individual who may be well connected, uh, but more so uh, this idea of the greatest good for the greatest number and really carrying it, carrying that out. Okay, so a lot of our listeners probably know a lot about government. They could teach a course on it. But for those who don't know as much about government and maybe only vote in the presidential elections, could you give us a quick crash course on just the different levels of government, where you fit into it, and what their different functions are? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I can uh, definitely start with kind of where I'm at um, with my race. Uh, being a representative um, means you're elected every two years, um, kind of to the to what uh, the framers of the Constitution thought of as the lower house of Congress. Uh, it's more chaotic. It's more representative of the people because it is elected so often. Um, and it's that place where kind of the the crash of the clash of ideas is so stark um, that you really do see lots of crazy, wild, crazy things that come out of the House uh, to move over to the Senate, which would be the more deliberative body. Um also elected every two years, but only a third of the Senate versus the entire House is elected in that in that cycle. Um, and really, it is the federal government is there um, to do very broad kind of high level things. Um, common defense is one of the big ones where you constantly see this huge military budget um, that the Congress is always talking about. You're looking at things like health care and all the things that the presidential candidates are putting forward now. Um, those are the federal level ideas. Obviously, the, the state um, still has House and Senate, uh, but they're looking more at how do we allocate money that's come down from the federal government to make sure that the state functions at a high level um, and to be you know as effective as we possibly can um, at whatever the party in control of the state house chooses to do. Um, and then, of course, your local government, um, your county commissioners, your school board members, all those people that... Um, for all intents and purposes, are those government officials or those elected government officials that make a difference in your everyday life? You know, the way that you actually see things change, um, whether it be, you know, your uh, school board members voting to, you know, change school board budgets for different schools to receive things, pay teachers a little bit more at the local level, uh, your county commissioners deciding on your, your tax levy against your property, um, you know, all those people that you know, if there's something going on, you can actually reach out and you can see them, you know, at public public hearings within the community. So, OK, you know. I do just want to say this isn't just for people who live in Georgia. You know, if you, wherever you live, this is still important for you and whoever your state officials are going to be or state representatives are going to be, whether that's they're moving on to uh, House or Senate. But I do want to ask this. So for those, as Jean mentioned, for those of us who I would say. A lot of our listeners vote in our presidential elections, and that's it. Yeah. Why is it important that we engage in these, uh, not just our local elections, but even our state elections as we're represented in, in government? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the presidential election is great. It's, it's, a, it's a time in general elections where people are excited, they're energized, uh, but the presidential election only carries us so far, uh, right? The president can set agenda the president can put all these ideas forth, um, but it's actually the Congress that executes on these things, right? So the president can't actually make any laws. Um, it, they have to put it to a Congress to make sure that the, the law is written and then passed. 
and so really and truthfully to me, uh, voting in those elections where the president isn't on the ballot and you're off your elections um, are, are some of the most important because those are those are where the Congress shifts and changes the most. So 2018 was a huge congressional year uh, where Congress definitely uh, started to change and look more and act more like the American people would would want. Uh, and so, you know, making sure that you're looking at those representatives um, is is huge uh, for me. You know, being responsive as a representative is huge um, because we're here. You know, representatives are here in their districts. They're working um, and they have offices. You know, they have people that work for them within the district that if you call your rep and you don't hear back from them, it's problematic because that's what they're there for. You know, they're there if you need something. Um, and they're there to take your, your problem and your concern to DC and to vocalize that, um, and to make sure that, you know, the people within the district are being heard. So I would encourage every chance you get, you know, make sure you know who your representatives are. Um, because at the end of the day, your senators, um, while voting on important things like Supreme court justices and political appointees and things like that, that's great. Um, but your representative is the one that's carrying your voice. I think it's so interesting how more and more we're hearing this uh, think globally, act locally. And uh, I feel like there's an awakening to this idea that um, that what's happening at a local level matters so much more. As you said, um, local government is going to deal with things you're dealing with every single day. Um, But when we actually want people to go vote, um, when we want someone to go and fight for us, um, someone who's running for Congress you have their ear in your district. Whereas you're saying a senator, you have two for the whole state. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of people to listen to, whereas you might be dealing with a unique situation in your own district. And the only person who's going to be fighting for you on a federal level is going to be your congressman. So that needs to be somebody who has your interest in mind and who's actually on the ground with you in your district. Absolutely. And and, I mean, a good example of that is Flint, Michigan, right? We see all this stuff now about the Flint water crisis which ostensibly is a is a local government issue. It's something that the local government should have fixed. It then goes up to the state level because it wasn't fixed at the local level. Well, we find out that it's because they were trying to privatize water. Well, one of the things that we know fails is privatizing public utilities. It doesn't work. It's not something that's meant to be a privatized system. And so it then moves to the federal level. The representatives in Flint, while doing a great job, um, I would argue that the squeaky wheel gets the grease and the more they're sounding that alarm and they will not let it go and they hammer on it and hammer on it and hammer on it, the more it became a national issue because they did a great job in saying my people in my district are struggling with having basic clean water. The water will catch fire. We need to do something. Yeah, the water in Flint, Michigan will catch fire when it comes out of the tap. You can light it, right? Like it's so polluted and it's so disgusting that it's that level of a problem. I don't know how we how we missed this. It, it, yeah, there's t- a bunch of YouTube videos joke. about it and things like that. It, it, it is it's something that your representatives have the ability to have that voice and they have that bullhorn and they and it's. It's something that if they're truly in touch with the community and truly understanding that they have to be responsive, not that they need to be, but they absolutely have to be responsive so that situations like that don't come up. Right. That's that's the type of representative we all need. Now, your incumbent 
is or the incumbent for um, for your district has this is his seventh term. Mm-hmm. He is sixty five mm-hmm. years old. Yes. Has a lot of ties to the community, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now you are thirty four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so how you are the demographic of our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So how does that how does that position you well uh, for your district to help fight for what concerns them? Yeah. So I think it it really boils down to understanding what people are really going through. And not that that anyone in their 60s is unable to understand what people are going through, but being that the millennial generation is now the largest demographic in America, um, it's really being able to understand where we are is is kind of not what's most important, but it is paramount to understanding um, because we are not just the future, we are the present. Right. Uh, and and Johnson's still putting ads in the newspaper <laughs> and you're on a podcast. Well, and like you said, too, like we have to think forward as well, because if we aren't um, if we aren't putting people into government who still have so much life ahead of them, uh, where where will we be? Yeah, it, it's interesting to to think about, you know, you you take somebody who has been sitting in Congress since 2007 and you look at how much the world has changed. And right. how much even being on a podcast, I, I can imagine there are representatives sitting in Congress right now that would be aghast to think I'm going to go sit at somebody's house and be on a podcast. <laughs> and, and, and to think that knowing that a huge population of the world listens to podcasts. Correct. Andrew right. Yang got to be a presidential candidate by being on podcasts. That's it's we're incredible. expecting the same outcome from this. I, I hope you know, man, if it happens, I <laughs> will be the first William. to come out and tell you that you need to go on, on Will and Jean's podcast <laughs> and you want to be here. Listen, that Gen is the y. Generation Y podcast. <laughs> this this uh, campaign is brought to you by the Gen Y podcast. <laughs> okay. So knowing what we just heard, let's take all of this and let's, let's take all of this context mm-hmm. and then let's talk about what's happening in our world right now. Let's talk about the, I mean, the obvious thing is this massive pandemic mm-hmm. that and I don't want to talk about just that. There's some other things yeah. as well. I'd love to talk about healthcare, wage gaps, all sorts of things like that. But it would be tone deaf not to talk about Right. It. But yeah. obviously this is the most prevalent issue that's happening in our country right now. Mm-hmm. What is the effect right now on local government from this? And then what are you seeing in on a federal government level? So... It's it's a couple things. So we have some obvious failures of government um, within this pandemic, Uh, one of which I mean, and this is just not to be too much on, you know, talking about presidential politics. But in 2018, President Trump fired the entire U.S. pandemic response team. Okay, they sat as a part of the National Security Council. Obviously, pandemics are huge national security issues that need to be dealt with and addressed accordingly. Um, back that, you know, fast forward to today where we're looking at now we're responding to an impending pandemic that for all we know has, has, you know, decimated, um, Europe, China, and, you know, it's, it's obviously going to take an effect on the entire world. Local government is responding local government and state government, you know, right now they're doing a great job. Um, because response to pandemic isn't about, you know, it's not like putting out a fire. We're looking at how do we affect this going forward? And I mean, they're doing a great job of providing information, making sure that we are all proportionally responding in the ways that we can individually and collectively. 
Um, so, you know, social um, distancing is, is a great way of trying to flatten that curve um, of the spread of pandemic. You know, it is a great idea to limit exposure of teachers and students um, in schools because we know, you know, sickness and illness moves through schools so fast. You know, closing certain childcare facilities is great. It's this idea that, you know, if we can, even though we know it's not really affecting children in that way uh, globally, it's still a good idea for us to get ahead of this because it's not going to just stop with the elderly. Um, in fact, it's really affecting people in our in our age group now. Mm-hmm. Um, does local and state government have the ability to move quicker on some of these issues than our federal government does? They do, but again, it's it's it goes back to what's the federal government making it a priority? Um, and so, uh, in a priority, I mean, what are they funded to do? Um, state and federal government can move as quickly as they possibly can, but they're constrained by the dollars that they can put behind it. The federal government's able to throw a lot of money and a lot of resources behind things that the state and especially local governments, because they're I mean, local governments are are really playing with playing with using local tax dollars to effectively run government. And so your larger municipalities, for instance, DeKalb County, I mean, we have a huge tax base. Um, and so we've got we've got quite a bit of money to, to mitigate certain things with. But you take some of your communities in South Georgia and Central Georgia who they're not they don't have huge tax bases. They don't have all of this money that they're they're able to respond to things with. Right. Um, And so they're they're more constrained where the state needs to step in. The federal government needs to allocate that money um, for response. And so that's that's kind of where you see the, the disconnect. Where are our governments dropping the ball on this right now? I mean, I would say the the first thing would have been prevention and heeding the warnings of those who were educated on this stuff. Right. I think we've, we've gotten to a point uh, even with our government where we're discounting the word of science. We're discounting the word of people who have spent their entire lives looking at pandemics. There are people who have devoted their time and effort into trying to forecast the next big one that's going to hit. You know, we see, we've seen SARS, We've seen, I say SARS, that's probably misleading given there are some scientific name for COVID-19. The the virus that causes COVID-19 is SARS-CoV-2. So that's a little bit misleading for me to say that. But but the the variation of the the disease that we saw back in the early 2000s, we've seen bird flu, we've seen swine flu, we've seen H1N1. All these different pandemics that people are looking at and they're looking at how do we predict these things? How do we prevent the spread? How do we do all these things? And as the government has become more and more politicized versus doing the job of government, which is to provide for the common good, we've started to discount the word of those people. Um, and it's having a negative effect and we're seeing it in real time. So I feel like in the media, we've been getting some mixed messaging mm-hmm. and in the president's most recent address, he responded to a question about the delayed reaction mm-hmm. to information on this pandemic, the threat to our nation, and said his response was that it wasn't that we weren't taking action, that the only holdup on being able to provide testing and prevention was that we were working off of an old system from different administrations that we're preventing them to be able to take the necessary steps. What is there truth to that? So one of the things I 
if elected, and even now in my everyday life that I pride myself on is calling it like it is, and that's crap, right? That's just, that's what it is. It's not even remotely true or or possible for us just to say, oh, it's somebody else's fault, right? right? We're three years into a presidency. People have been in your ear about this, I'm sure. There's no way they haven't been the most powerful person in the world with tons and tons of staff and, and access to people that are very smart. If you're saying it's because of somebody else, you're disingenuous at best, probably lying at worst. There has to be a way for us to just say that because our response being delayed because of somebody else not doing something in the past is not an acceptable answer now. Right. Like, let's make a move. Let's do something. Let's try to be proactive and not just wait. And then, you know, the the old saying goes, thanks, Obama. Right. Like, but we're, we're past that. <laughs> it's time to do something. Whenever I whenever I would get a big win in life, I would also say thanks, Obama. I'd be like <laughs> that. My way of combating that ignorance was I'd be like Pillsbury just came out with you know, double chocolate peanut butter cookies. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> so people always say the first step to moving forward and progressing is, is is admitting that you have a problem. Have we done that as a government yet? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, in fact, we have someone that's been sounding that call for a very long time. Um, and just full transparency with you guys. I don't even know if I've told you guys this. Uh, I have endorsed Senator Sanders to be the next president of the United States um, because he has been doing things like sounding the alarm on the fact that our healthcare system is broken. This thing that is happening right now um, is, is a direct representation of why our healthcare system is so broken because the ability to respond lies within the healthcare system. The ability to sound the alarm in the first, in the first place lies in the healthcare system. And it's how do we approach these things? And we approach them with, Two things in mind, profit and profit. Yeah. That's, that's the way our healthcare system works. So I wanted to ask you more about this. How is that shedding light on the inadequacies of our current healthcare system? Yeah, definitely. So um, the, the first and most obvious one is testing, right? Like we're just not testing people. Uh, yesterday, the CDC tested 77 people, right? They're testing thousands of people in places like Senegal. They're testing hundreds of thousands of people in South Korea we are ostensibly testing no one. Um, and we're just hoping that self-quarantine will work because the insurance companies do not want to come off the money to test and then treat people, right? Like Without that's payment. Without payment. And the idea that you're going to have people come in and, and use this very expensive test um, that, by the way, lots of wealthy people uh, are able to buy already. Sure. Um, and then we're going to look at the result and and have to treat them uh, without the the type of repayment that they're asking for. It's just not going to happen. And so until the healthcare system evolves to a place, um, which I believe is a Medicare for all single payer system, where you come and you get treated and you come and you, you get tested and you get treated because you're sick. And the idea that cost is a deterrent or cost is a barrier to doing that, um, is, is gone like that. It should not be a question of, can you afford to be well? There right. should never be an idea that you can't go to the doctor, um, because you can't afford it. 
So we, you compared this to some other countries who are dealing with a similar issue. We, I mean, countries like China, South Korea have received a lot of public praise over the way that they have handled and contained this issue in their country. One, how are they so effective at doing that? And two, could we follow suit? South Korea, um, definitely 100% could follow suit easily. Uh, a lot of the ways that South Korea conducts themselves, um, is, is based on how we traditionally have done things in America. Um, they have a universal healthcare system, um, that we could easily move toward. Um, and, and there's, there's nothing but, um, political courage standing between us and the South Korean model. China is a little bit different of a ball game because it is a communist government. They are able to control things very tightly. Um, and, and G, I mean, having government officials posted, you know, in apartment buildings and, you know, grocery stores and places like that, that's, that's not our model. We're not looking to be anything remotely like communists. Um, but you know, the praise that comes for Japan in that instance is that once they publicly acknowledged that they had a problem, they also had to publicly respond and they're able to do that with muscle. They're able to do that with the muscle of the government weighing on the people. We don't want to do that here. We want to give people the best options to pursue being healthy and taking care of that we possibly can. But is that a better system for a time like this? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, and, and the biggest reason is once you see government flex its muscle in that way, um, it's very, very hard to go back. A good example, you know, the Patriot Act that came out of 9-11, the AUMF that came, you know, in 2002 and 2003, um, that was government flexing its muscle. Now we have in our built into our budget, a contingency fund to fight terror abroad. Um, that's, that is government's ability to flex its muscle early on still reflecting now. Um, you know, we, we are still continuously engaged in overseas contingency against terrorism that may or may not actually be terrorism. You know, we had, we assassinated general Soleimani in Iran. Well, we assassinated him in Iraq, but you know, to do that, we went with the authorization to use military force. Well, that was against terrorists. Well, he is a known, government official in the Iranian government. And now we're able to just say, oh, but, but he's also a terrorist. When in reality, it's one state actor acting against another state actor. And so it's very, it's very scary to think that we could then say, okay, government step in in this way in the Chinese model and us be able to back away from that. Okay. Well, take South Korea then. What I'm hearing you say is we could respond in a similar way if our system was different, Absolutely. we have to be willing to change Absolutely. things about our system. Absolutely. It, it would take a systemic reform to move toward a Medicare for all system for us to respond in the way that South Korea does, because South Korea, you know, they were able to tell people like, just come in and get tested, like come in and get tested. It's not a cost thing. It's not a, you know, a wait time thing. It's just come in. I'll be honest. And we had Dr. Mirdad Etishami uh, on uh, another episode and, and he was encouraging people because of the current state of, of the climate here is saying, hey, don't go get tested. I yeah. mean, one, it's so expensive, but then two, you're taking 
time and energy away from hospitals and ER doctors Absolutely. who actually need to be using that on other people who Absolutely. are actually sick. Yeah. So he's like, if you have it, just assume you do and stay home. Absolutely. But that's not what's happening in other countries. Absolutely. And, and and I think that's a testament to our system. And 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 he is totally right in saying that if you feel like you have it to stay home, because our system is not equipped to deal with it now. It's not a it's not equipped to deal with the load that could come with that. Um and in the the worst possible outcome is that our providers all start to fall ill because then we're just kind of we're right. stuck. Um, and it really is, you know, especially, you know, being in the, in the emergency department, you know, those doctors are right there. They are, they are the front line. They are the ones that are, are treating people who are sick that they're unconfirmed to be as sick as they are. And so, you know, at this point it is, it, our system is not built for people just to come in. So how would a system like that, like, Medicare for all, how would that benefit us in the long run and not just during a nationwide and global wide pandemic? Absolutely. So I mean, a Medicare for all system, um, you know, really focuses in on that healthcare part of it right now, you know, people, people joke and it's kind of cliche and a little bit lame. Um, but they call it a sick care system and we don't get care until we're sick. Um, you know, we, we hear all these negative things about Cuba and, you know, their government, but they have a giant preventive care focus and Medicare for all is built the exact same way. Well, I can't say the exact same way. There are obviously some giant differences in there, but it's built in much the same way that the idea is that we want to treat people regularly, you know, not just when they're sick, right? but that you come in and you get your preventive care and you're looking at how do I stay healthy? Mm -hmm. Not how do I get back to well? And so that's the difference. That is the, when you're talking about global pandemic, you know, the U.S. leads the way in so many areas and we we are able to influence culture in so many ways. And I would argue that that's the greatest thing we could do is we move to a Medicare for all system and then we influence that culture around the world to say, go see your doctor, doctor regularly. Go get a checkup. Go make sure that you you don't have all these underlying illnesses that are going to make you susceptible to things like global pandemic, right? Because the people that are most affected by global pandemic are the young and the old in, in most cases, obviously mm -hmm. this one being a little bit different, but you know, the young and the old are affected because one, one end of that spectrum is got an immune system. That's a little bit aged and that's trying hard to fight off things on the other end of the spectrum. You have a brand new baby immune system. That's just growing into all the things that are in the world. And so the more that we're able to, look toward a healthcare model that promotes us being well, right? Not just the drug commercials that address all the things that happen once we're sick, mm -hmm. but more so what we're looking at to stay healthy on the front end. Who would be against a Medicare for all system and why? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, most everyone now, uh, you know, there are a wealth of, um, Republican politicians, along with corporate Democrats and and um, establishment, you know, media folks who would have us believe that it would bankrupt us. They would have us believe that um, it's not possible here in America. Um, and, and it kind of goes back to this idea of political courage. It takes that will. It takes the muscle of pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and you know, in the last four years, we've moved the ball down the field and mm -hmm. we, and it is a part of the national conversation, but it's interesting. I read a, I read a tweet earlier and, and watched a video of Senator Sanders asking questions 
as late as yesterday of you say you want everybody to have access to a COVID-19 um, vaccine. How are you going to pay for it? This idea that we're still asking, how are you going to pay for people to get a vaccine to, to curb a global pandemic is the reason why we still don't have a Medicare for all system. It's because there's this idea that we can't afford it, but we've spent $6.7 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan. If we can afford bullets and bombs, we can afford healthcare and vaccines. So for people who are asking how, how do we pay for this? Can, can you just give us a hypothetical? Let's just say it is now enacted. We have universal healthcare. Uh, what does that look like from a financial standpoint for people? Like how does that show up in their taxes? Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and that's the way to do it. And, and it's funny that, you know, we're still having this conversation um, and Forbes actually, you know, laid out Senator Sanders plan. Um, it's very, it's very detailed. It's kind of, it's an amazing piece of legislation because it is so detailed. It does show so many ways that we're going to afford this stuff and pay for it. Um, in, in the, the answer is a 4% increase to your taxes on anything over $29,000 that shows up as almost nothing. I, and, and it's, it's, People will say that that's crazy and I'll feel that and it's going to make such a huge difference. A 4% tax increase on any income over $29,000 hardly feels like anything. I think it's like 1200 bucks a year. For a whole year, which for, for most year. people who are trying to pay health insurance right now are probably paying at least $150 a month for themselves. So Absolutely. this is this is less than that. I mean, just inside baseball into my life, um, my wife is a medical provider at Emory. Well, she's a fellow at Emory University um, in the pediatric infectious disease division. Our health care is still 300 bucks a month and she's a health care provider, mm -hmm. right? It, it's there are people that are paying well over and above that, not to mention co-pays, deductibles. Um, you know, 1200 bucks a year is amazing. Oh, yeah. My sister's paying like 650 a month Absolutely. right now for that's in. So based on that model in two months, she will pay what she could pay over the course of a year. Absolutely. To have so her are the people that benefit most from the current model people who can slip through loopholes in the system? I don't think so. I think that the the people that benefit the most uh, in the system are those that live at below or even near the poverty line, right? And so the most vulnerable people are those people who work minimum wage jobs, who have to go to work to get paid, um, and a lot of them don't even have insurance and their employer doesn't offer insurance mm -hmm. to them. Um, you know, it's, it's those people who, you know, when you, when you talk about people who can find a loophole, um, it's usually the super wealthy that can find the loophole to fit through. Um, it's, you know, regular folks like you and I, you know, yeah. a lot of the people that, that are probably listening, um, you know, we don't, we don't know where those loopholes are. We don't know how to even find those. Loopholes. Right. If you're yeah. anywhere, anywhere above below or in the middle of middle class, you probably can't afford your health insurance right now, unless your employer is giving you a really great rate. Absolutely. You, um, in a conversation we were having before this episode, William, you mentioned a term called universal basic income. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk just a little bit about that? What that is? Yeah. And how it might even might be enacted in a situation like this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, universal basic income kind of as made famous by Andrew Yang in this presidential election cycle um, is this idea that we set a floor to how much a person should be able to make. 
right? And should be able to to live off of. I think his proposal was offering folks a thousand bucks a month um, for every man, woman, and child is, is how he has how he phrased it per person per person, regardless and of what you're making, regardless of what you're making. And I think he may have had some caps in there. Uh, to be totally honest with you guys, I did not read his entire proposal. Um, how dare you? You know, it is it is a 400 pages. So this is in addition to your income. Yes. Yeah. So it would be something that, you know, and, and when everyone is working and the economy is, is going great, it is money to help you get just a little bit farther, you know, just to help kind of decrease that income and wealth inequality um, that exists in America just a little bit. But in times like now where people are being asked to stay home and those hourly wage workers are not going to work. Um, it's the difference between having food on the table. You know, it's the difference between being able to keep the lights on if, if the good graces of utility companies are not keeping them on, you know, it it is that thing that keeps you from falling into, you know, abject poverty and then possibly even into homelessness. So this isn't saying that a high school basketball coach and the CEO of a company are making the same salary. No, this no, is no. Sa- saying that you're going to make your salary, but then on top of that, here's, you are, here's just a little bit more money toward living everyday life. Just so that there is an amount you will never go below. Exactly. You will never go below, just make up an amount. You'll never go below $5,000. You'll always be supported to that degree. Yeah. And and so, and, and if you lose your job, right, you have no job. You're still going to be getting that thousand bucks a month and it's still there to help you. How does that play into unemployment benefits? I, I mean, I don't know that you could tie that into unemployment benefits because unemployment benefits um, are administered by the state and have rules and regulations that you still have to follow to receive those benefits. Okay. Um, I think that it's more of a, a high level federal position um, that is instituted regardless of employment status. Okay. In a crazy time like this, there's also, like you said, all these people who are staying home. And I'm seeing a lot of companies who are deciding to pay people no matter what. They're honoring contracts uh, for events that are no longer happening. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious, you talked about uh, family paid leave. And how would that how would that come into play during a time like this? So two things with that. Um, I think the first thing is there's this idea that um, we're operating within the good graces of super wealthy people in times like these. Um, I don't think that it should be up to us to depend on our employer to do the right thing um, because companies have one goal and they have one obligation and it is to maximize profits. Paid family and medical leave should be something that's instituted by the federal government to ensure that companies are not operating in their good graces, but we're operating, we, we, excuse me, are operating within the their obligations. So mm-hmm. they I feel like companies should be obligated that if you have employees, you need to pay them regardless of what's going on in their life. Right. right? Like you expect employees to come in regardless of what's going on in their life. Cool. Then you should also pay them regardless of what's going on in their life. Well and this was a huge issue with the with the virus spreading because people were out of sick days where they could continue to get it paid. So they were coming into work sick and they were infecting other people. Absolutely. Um, we have people in government like Ted Cruz who voted against paid leave. Mm-hmm. Then he got sick and he went on paid leave. Absolutely. And was out sick for two weeks, came mm-hmm. back, isn't feeling well and is back on paid leave. Yes. He voted against paid leave. Mm-hmm. 
So what happens when people in power who are supposed to be representing the needs of their constituents are actually not voting in favor of what their community needs? Yeah. So quick answer is vote them out. Uh, the, <laughs> the longer answer um, is they need to be held accountable, right? You cannot in, and I say this in good conscience or in good faith, um, sit in Congress and think that, and they do this now, think that they can be tested, they can be quarantined, they can get the treatment, and their constituents are just kind of out. Um, right. They're, you know, we have this idea now of political revolution, and we have this idea that, you know, we are going to see things change in our lifetime because we're the generation that's going to fight for them. These are the people that have to go first. Right. They got to go. Um, and, you know, for the 40... Congress people that voted against it on, I think it was Friday night, early Saturday morning. You got to go. Right. It's time. Um, and anybody that is complacent in that, um, anybody that is willing to cave to the demands of those that don't want people to have that ability, you got to go. Um, you know, the, the bill that passed the other night um, for this giant emergency aid package, there were people that said that, em that employers with over 500 employees did not have to provide paid medical or family leave at this point, right? Why? They got interests. They got donors to they got donors to answer to. And so they voted against it. And they allowed that to pass. And it only covers twenty percent of Americans now. Oh my gosh. Everybody that had a hand in that, that it said that it's okay for anybody over five hundred employees not to pay family and medical leave, you gotta go. It's time. So realistically, what would it take? So we have paid family leave, universal basic in income, Medicare for all, all of these things, mm -hmm. what would it take to actually move the ball forward on some of these things? I, it, it is going to take people getting out. It is going to take people getting out to vote. Um, in a time like this now, uh, my public cry at this point would be to, to postpone elections until we can get this thing under control. Mm -hmm. um, you know, And I'm not saying that as a means of leaving people in office uh, you know, indefinitely. But I think that we can't in good conscience with the way that our voting system is set up, allow people to stand in these huge lines for extended periods of time, exposing one another to whatever may be going on. Um, but rather when, when people are healthy and we're on the mend as a nation, we have these elections and we understand that anybody running for office right now, it doesn't matter what level you're at. If you're not trying to move the ball forward, we cannot allow you to stay in office or be in office because this stuff can't keep happening. This right. is not a sustainable way for us to move forward. This is not a sustainable way for us to behave as an American political system. Rather, we have to invite that revolution. We have to embrace the fact that we're not going to keep taking crumbs that are given to us, but rather we, we are going to take the things that are a must because they're not radical ideas. A universal basic income is not a radical idea. A Medicare, Medicare for all system is not a radical idea. We should not have this fear of getting sick in America. We right. should not have this fear anywhere, but much less in America um, where it is totally preventable. And so it, it's going to take revolution. So for our listeners, whether they, wherever they live, what is something that they need to start doing uh, a call to action, so to speak, yeah. to move this ball forward. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the first and probably most important thing is to look for those people running for office um, 
who are running on a progressive platform, who are uncorrupted um, by the corporate money that's out there, who are looking to really represent people. You know, you'll see a lot of people that are running for office that say, oh, I want change. But when you dig into it, they're financed by some powerful corporate interest. Look for people who are asking, you know, the people that you see on on Facebook and Instagram who are saying, please give me money. I need your help. I can't do this without you. I'm not taking any corporate money. Those are the people to support because those are the people that want to go fight. And that's you. That is that is you're not taking any corporate money. I am not taking a dime of corporate money. I am totally financed by um, people who are willing to believe in me and believe what I have to say. If people listening to this do believe in you and they want to help, where can they go? Uh, WilliamHaston.com is the website. Have all of my policy proposals on there. Um, Everything that I'm passionate about. All of that stuff is there. Um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, William Haston for Congress. Uh, I think the Twitter and Instagram handles are William for F-O-R-G-A and the number four. Um, And you know, we'll have everything out there. Um, beginning this week, we're going to start doing quite a bit of web content um, about, you know, our, our race, kind of getting it out to the people in the district uh, as we start to push toward Election Day um, on May 19th. So we'll have links to all of that in our show notes that you can go through and click on those to make sure you can find more about William and contribute to his campaign and what he's trying to do. Um, but we would encourage you to do this for whoever your local government officials are because your or your state officials, because um, it really does matter and it really does make a big difference. So William, do you have any last minute thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Guys, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, this, of course. this was awesome. I amazing. love having this conversation with you guys. Um, the thing I would leave everybody with is believe that there's better. Um, don't settle for the crumbs. We're way past that time. Um, it's time for change and big, huge, radical change takes a lot of courage. Um, get in the fight. It's fun. It's, um, it's taxing, it's tiring, but it's worth it. Amazing. I love that. Well, hey, if you guys have questions for William or for us, you can send those to us at info at genypodcast.com. That's G-E-N-W-H-Y podcast.com. Or you can check us out on our Instagram. Uh, we'll have you know links to all sorts of things on there. And uh, send us a DM, ask us your questions, and we'll send those over to William and see if we can get your uh, Georgia State Congressman hopeful to answer <laughs> some of those questions for you. William, thanks for joining us on the Generation Y podcast. And for all of you listeners, please uh, like, share, and rate, and do all those things. Uh, that really does help us out a lot. Leave us a review, uh, and then we would love to connect with you as well. So reach out to us, tell us who you are, where you're listening from, and we'd love to get to know you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.